You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a a joy to be together as we worship the Lord. And let me invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians, particularly Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. If you're visiting with us here this morning, we're glad you're here. We always love to see new faces as we gather to worship King Jesus. And today we are concluding a series that we've been in for a little while now on the means of grace And we're going to conclude uh, by looking to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. Next Sunday, of course, is Easter weekend, as you've already heard. And then after Easter, we plan to begin a study on the book of Malachi. But today, I want to direct our attention to Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. This prayer from the Apostle Paul, which is my prayer for you this day. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Fathers, we gather this morning. We do so with both gravity and gladness. We do so with great seriousness, but Lord, also great joy, both with reverence and with awe. And Father, as we seek to set our hearts upon your word this day, particularly Ephesians chapter 3, O Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us understanding, that you would open up our eyes, that you would unclog our ears, that you would soften our hearts to receive this glorious invitation that we have in Christ Jesus, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. At the conclusion of this series, I want to extend to you an invitation. And this invitation is to come and enjoy all that God has provided you in Christ Jesus. I think for many of us who follow Christ and who watch our spiritual lives, I think sometimes we look at our lives and it feels, it seems as if our spiritual growth has been stunted. And why does that happen? Why do we, why do we see this in our lives? Why do we plateau spiritually? Why are so many Christians seemingly stuck in perpetual spiritual infancy? Why do God's children, those of us who claim to be the children of God, why do we seem to have this chronic lack of enthusiasm about the God who has redeemed us in Christ? 
Why, why does that happen in your life? Why does that happen in my life? You see, I think the, the breakdown in our sanctification as believers stems from a failure to fully understand the extent of the gospel. Because for many Christians, salvation is merely just getting out of hell and getting into heaven. For them, salvation is a one-time transaction. It is a gift of God. Yes, they would agree, but that that gift is complete as soon as it happens. Now, this this transactional element of the gospel is very important. I'm not not minimizing it. It's essential to the gospel. In so many ways, it is the starting point of understanding the gospel, that the believer is justified definitively before God by their faith in Jesus Christ. That is a foundational truth, a truth which must never be minimized nor abandoned by the church. However, when it comes to the Christian life, I think there's a bit of a defect. When we think that justification by faith is a cul-de-sac, a static end of the road. And if you think that way, the journey of faith ends as soon as it begins. But we have to correct this misguided understanding uh, with the truth of God's word. You see, justification by faith is not a cul-de-sac, but it's an on-ramp to the superhighway of God's grace. More than being a dead end, faith in Christ is the beginning of a cross-country journey upon the open road where there will always be new and fresh and deeper enjoyments of God to discover along the way. As we traverse upon this highway of the gospel, the beauty of God's glory and love ought to be ever increasing as we behold more and more of all that we have received from our justification in Christ. You see, I think there's this sanctification gap in the lives of so many Christians. And I think it stems from our failure to ride down the highway of of Scripture to behold all that we have been given in our new life in Christ. You see, the gospel initiates a new life. And it is a more in-depth understanding of this gospel that leads to spiritual transformation, that spiritual transformation that you and I need and the spiritual joys for which we long. It comes from a deeper understanding of this gospel. However, all these precious truths about the gospel can be summed up, can be encapsulated in this idea of union with Christ what it means to be united with Christ. All the benefits of the gospel come to us because we are in Jesus. You know, as we've considered all the means of grace these last several weeks, if you've been with us through this series, as we considered their their personal use, their private use, and as we've considered their corporate or church use, The means of grace are these spiritual habits and practices prescribed by God in his word that enable us to taste the sweet fellowship that we are able to have in Christ Jesus. The means of grace are more than just an intellectual understanding of God's love. The means of grace are the instrument by which God enables us to enjoy his ongoing presence in our lives. 
through the means of grace, God continues to give himself in an active and yes, even in an experiential way in the life of the believer. Simply put, the aim of the Christian life is to know God. It's to know God. Not like you may know the facts of a nutrition label, but to know God as a lover of your soul. You see, as we conclude this series on the means of grace, I want to, in so many ways, not talk about the practical aspect of the means of grace. We've done that the last few weeks. Instead, I want to invite you. I want to give you an invitation to jump in and to experience the fullness of God in your life, enabled by the gospel, and experience the fullness of what it means to be united to Jesus by faith. And to do that, we're going to look to Paul's amazing prayer here in Ephesians chapter 3. This breathtaking prayer that sweeps us up in the glorious reality of our salvation in Christ. Paul's prayer is going to invite you and I not into this deeper knowledge of who God is, and it will also serve as a fitting conclusion to our series on spiritual formation through the means of grace. So here's the sermon summary. I know you are expecting it, right? Here's what we will be seeing this morning from God's word. Because we are united to Christ, the Holy Spirit uses the means of grace to strengthen us to comprehend the extent of God's love in order that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. I'll give you a moment to get that down. It's a bit lengthier than normal. Because we are united to Christ, the Holy Spirit uses the means of grace. These spiritual habits that we've been talking about, he uses them to strengthen us to comprehend the extent of God's love in order that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, as we work through this prayer, we're going to do so in three stages. First, we're going to consider this morning this inward transformation described in the text, strengthened by the Spirit in verse 14 through 16. But before we get into the specifics of those verses, I do want to ramp up a bit by taking this journey through these first couple chapters in Ephesians to help us see how Paul gives us this grand vision of God's plan of redemption that really culminates in this prayer here for the church in Ephesians 3, verse 14 and following. You see, in Ephesians, Paul is unpacking the mystery of the gospel. This mystery that was at one time hidden, but now has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Paul describes how God has chosen, in Ephesians 1, to love his church even before the foundation of the world. Before God ever said, let there be, he predestined us, Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And that now in Christ... United to him, we have redemption and forgiveness according to the riches of God's grace. And now, Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 8, now the mystery of his will has been set forth in Christ as God is uniting everything unto himself, things in heaven and in earth. And so the entire scope of redemption that Paul gives us here in Ephesians 1 is for God's glory. Indeed, it is God's glory that is the chief end of all that he does as God. And as Paul goes into Ephesians 2, he describes how God, by his grace, 
raises dead sinners to life, that he justifies them by faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul is emphatic that the entire work of salvation comes by God's grace. Why? So that God alone can be praised. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 9. Paul says, salvation, including our own faith, is not our own doing. Why? It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Here's the why. So that no one may boast. And so, as we're united to Christ, by God's grace, we are also united and reconciled to one another. Jew and Gentile, Paul would say in Ephesians 2 right? Ephesians 2 verse 20, join together Jew and Gentile upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. God in his amazing plan to bring himself glory has chosen to redeem his church and to unite his church upon Christ and thereby calling a united people together to be a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the spirit, Paul says. So now that Jesus has come, the mystery of the gospel is now revealed by the Spirit. And Paul is actually raising and answering so many of the questions that are foundational to us as human beings. Why did God create the world? For what purpose has he exercised his sovereignty as God? To what appointed end is history moving towards? You see, the mystery of why is answered definitively in the arrival of Jesus, that the Father unites his Son to the chosen and redeemed church so that the Spirit may dwell in his people as a united and joined together temple. All of this he does to the praise of his glory. That's why he does it, to the praise of his glory. You see, Paul, as he's walking us through Ephesians, he is not taking us down a cul-de-sac gospel, is he? But he is guiding us down the highway of God's glorious redemption. You see, when you travel to the mountains, you can find great value in going up to a single tree. And you can see something of that tree's beauty and its design. You can look at the texture of its leaf. You could look at the shade of its brown bark, perhaps. But that beauty is compounded, isn't it? When you go up to the top of the mountain, and when you look over the miles of green before you, peppered together with trees on the hillside, and the individual beauty of that single tree is weaved together into this breathtaking tapestry. This is what Paul's trying to do here in Ephesians for us. The work of the gospel is so similar. What joy is there when a single sinner repents? Luke 15 tells us the angels in heaven rejoice when when a single sinner repents. How precious of a truth is it that God has saved me as an individual? That he has saved you as an individual. But yet as Paul is, is leading us here in Ephesians 3, he's not just taking us to a single tree. He's taking us up to the mountain. He's giving us a vantage point by which we can behold the mystery of God's will for his creation now revealed to us in Jesus. And what a breathtaking view of this gospel, this gospel that has saved you if you are in Christ. You see, God has first and foremost saved you for his own glory. That's why he does it. That's why he does all that he does. But God has first and foremost saved you for his glory, but yet God is glorified by our enjoyment of him. 
Why does God justify sinners like us? Not merely so that we can escape condemnation, but so that he could unite us to himself in Christ. So important. God is glorified as he redeems his people and as his people delight in him and enjoy him. You see, now we arrive at Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3. And again, we can see at this point, Paul prays for the church, building upon all that he's considered so far in the book of Ephesians. And he prays that the church at Ephesus might experience and enjoy with greater comprehension all that they have been given in Christ Jesus. You see, God's glory and our joy are not opposed to one another. Do you want to glorify God in your life? I pray that you do then take up the means of grace by which you enjoy the Lord. The sweet communion given to us in our union with Christ is experienced today, right now, in and through the means of grace. That the ravishing delight that we will one day experience in the new heavens and the new earth is but a foreshadow of what awaits us at the end of the age. We can experience that now. You see, you don't merely twiddle your thumbs in the Christian life waiting for death or for Jesus' return. The means of grace allow us to know in some small way the greater consummation of pleasure to come at the end of the age, at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. So look at this prayer here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul directs his prayer to the Father. This is such a beautifully Trinitarian prayer here. He directs his prayer to the Father. He bends his knee, which communicates the, the earnestness and the emotion, his passion in his prayer for the church at Ephesus. And in this prayer that we see here before us, many have suggested three petitions which mark this prayer, marked by the word that in our English translations. Look at verse 16. First one, that he may grant you to be strengthened. First petition. Second petition, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Third petition, that, verse 19, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Those are often seen as those three key petitions, these three requests that Paul makes in this prayer. But I think these three requests are not separate ones. Instead, think of them as a spiral in which each request is going deeper and deeper, building on top of one another, drilling us down deeper and deeper into the enjoyment and knowledge that we have in God. You see, as the Lord strengthens our inner being, Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And as Christ dwells within us through our union with him, we can be filled with all the fullness of God. These prayers are oscillating, spiraling down, getting us deeper and deeper into the gospel. But yet this work of inward renewal is all done by God's spirit. You see, look at how he prays. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Isn't that amazing? The Christian life is this ongoing transformation of our most inner person. You see, God's work of grace encompasses all of who we are, down to our very innermost parts. 
See, the gospel isn't just interested in changing your externals, your outside behaviors. No, God is aiming to transform fundamentally who we are, our desires, our affection, our inner being. God's grace is at work in transforming us and conforming us to the pattern of Christ. But yet this work of inward renewal doesn't come by our own strength, does it? It can't happen by our own strength. It comes by the power of God, Paul says. That's what he prays for. It it is according to the riches of his glory that God strengthens us. Sanctification is a work of God in the life of the believer. Even though we have a role to play, even though we take up the means of grace, it is not the means themselves that sanctify. It is God who sanctifies by his spirit. And this makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. Because it was God's spirit who first caused us to be born again in the first place. It was God's spirit who first took us who were dead in our trespasses and sin and made us alive together in Christ. It was God's spirit who first did this work. And so it makes sense that it is the spirit of God that provides the ongoing work through the means of grace to apply the power of God to our lives to strengthen this inner renewal and transformation that comes by his grace. But yet the spiral of Paul's prayer keeps going deeper into the very heart of the gospel, into the glorious purposes of God. Paul prays for the inner being to be strengthened in the church so that someone can inhabit our hearts. And that leads secondly to this heart inhabitation, right? That Christ dwells in our hearts. Look at how Paul prays in verse 17. Paul prays for the church of Ephesus that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here, Paul is emphasizing yet again in Ephesians what it means to be united to Jesus. That there is this intimate union, the Lord Jesus dwelling within us by his spirit. And how are we united to Christ? How does that happen? Paul gives us the answer. We're united to Christ through faith, through faith. Salvation in Christ comes by faith alone. Faith is what joins us to the promises of God. It is what binds our hearts to him as Jesus inhabits our hearts as new creatures born again of the spirit of God. So let me ask you a very, very important question. Does Christ dwell in your hearts? The only way to be united to Christ is by faith in Christ. You must, as a sinner, see the wretchedness of your sin. You must mourn the state of your helplessness before a holy God. You must grieve that you have ever sinned against one so holy and good and righteous. And you must realize that the only thing that you deserve from God is his righteous judgments. And yet, In your desperate state, it must cause you to look up and look to Jesus for mercy. And as you look to Jesus, you see that that he is the righteousness that you need. He has the forgiveness that you require. It comes from him. In him is the fellowship with God that I was created and designed for. In Jesus is salvation from hell, reconciliation to my maker, peace with the Father, and rest from the anxious labor of my toil. If that's you, oh weary sinner, 
at the very moment that you're most troubled by your sin, at the very moment when you sense that you are most convicted by the Spirit, that is the moment you must repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and set your gaze upon him in faith. Look to him in faith. And the word of God says that as you repent and look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ will dwell in your hearts. You will be united to him if you would but repent and believe in him. And so as you are united to Christ, you as a a sinner can have access to the riches of his mercy, the abundance of his righteousness, the strength of his spirit, the blessedness of his inheritance, the lavishness of his love is all yours because you are joined to Christ in faith. If you're not a Christian today, we plead with you, we urge you, to look to Christ and live. Be united to him by faith in Jesus. And if you are a Christian this morning, all that I've described is yours. It's yours. You have this. Christ is yours. He has given himself to you, to me. We are united to him by by faith. Look at what Paul prays in this text. Paul prays for the church that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you, you could be thinking here, Is Paul implying that Christ does not currently dwell in the hearts of the Ephesian church or in you? Not what he means at all. By no means, to use Paul's words, right? In fact, because Paul is so fearful of being misunderstood here, he actually interjects in sort of an awkward way in the text. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. In other words, what what Paul is saying is, church, may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, not that you aren't already rooted and grounded in him, Don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that you're not already united to Christ. In other words, what is Paul praying for here? He is praying that the church might experience a deeper knowledge, a deeper comprehension, understanding all the sense of the implications of what it means to be united to Jesus. So Paul continues in verse 18. Look at how he prays. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, now here we see why Paul is praying for spiritual strength in our lives so that we have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ, to comprehend the love of Christ. Paul then decides he, to use the language of, of an architect here. Look at what he says. What is the the breadth and length and height and depth? What is Paul measuring? What is he measuring here? What is the object of our comprehension by which he's measuring? He clarifies in verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Surpasses knowledge. Paul wants us to know the extent of God's love. Just how broad does the love of God go for his church? Just how long? Just how high, just how deep. You see, Paul is inviting us to jump into the ocean of divine love and start swimming and see how far it goes. The infinite goodness of God's love for us in Christ is massive, infinite. And Paul prays that the church might not only have this this intellectual notion of God's love, but that they would be swallowed up in the love of God. May we drown in the ocean of Christ's love and so sink deeper and deeper into his very heart.
And so here is my prayer, and this is my invitation to you, Redemption Church, the people to whom God has united to himself by faith in Christ, to you, the the saints who are rooted and grounded in love, who long to know something of Christ's love. My invitation to you is to jump in. Do not be content with a superficial knowledge of this love. Do not be content with an academic knowledge of this love. Do not be slothful and lazy in your knowledge of this God. Take up every means that God has given you and with eager zeal and gladness long to know what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote an entire book on these set of verses. And he slows down as he goes through this text and he meditates line by line on each phrase. What does it mean for God's love to be broad? What does it mean for God's love to be long? What does it mean for it to be deep? What does it mean for it to be high? And at one point in this book, Bunyan laments how so many Christians seem to know little of Christ's love. Here's what he says. He writes, moreover, we shall see those little spirited Christians though Christians indeed, that are but in a small measure acquainted with this God. No, this knowledge is reserved only for those who are devoted thereto, who have been acquainted with God in a measure beyond that which you narrow-spirited Christians understand. As you look at your life, are you in a small measure acquainted with this God? Or do you know him? We we must take up every means available to us. And we must pray that God would enlarge our hearts to comprehend the love that we possess in Christ. The infinity of God's love is available to you right now if you are in Christ. Do you realize, Christian, what you possess? Do you know whose you are? Do you fathom the ocean of mercy in which you swim? The Christian life is not sitting in a waiting room, friends, nor is it a slog of grueling obedience, nor is it abstinence from any happiness in this life. No, not at all. The Christian life is a pursuit of joy, forsaking the rubbish of this worldly garbage dump for the oasis of grace available to you in Jesus. Sanctification is becoming more enamored more captivated, more transfixed by Jesus and what we possess in him. We grow deeper in our knowledge of the gospel. We grow deeper, but yet this knowledge is experiential in a way, right? It causes us to be strengthened by the power of the spirit that we might know all the glorious and pleasurable implications of what it means to be in Christ, to be united to him, that that again, you see what Paul is inviting you to here, right? That the joys of heaven can be known now in some small parts. And we take up the means of grace. And as we take them up, as we read the Bible, as we pray, as we fast, the spirit of God is enlarging our hearts to have the strength to comprehend this love that goes beyond and surpasses knowledge. Church, as you take up the means of grace, is that your aim? Is that what you long to see God do in your life? When you pick up the Bible and read, do you ask, Lord, 
As I read your word, strengthen me to comprehend the depths of your love. Make my heart enamored with you. Stir my affections for you. And in the pages of the Bible, drop me into the ocean of your love. When you fast, you plead that the Lord would stir your hunger for him above bread, above drink. When you sit down in the quiet of solitude to pray, do you plead that you may experience the pleasures of God upon you through your union with Christ? You see, all the means of grace must be taken up for this end, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Sound doctrine and Christian orthodoxy are essential here. Communion with God is not possible without them. But Paul prays that the church would go beyond a mere textbook understanding of God's redemption and that they would squeeze out every implication of what it means to be united to Christ. You see, when we talk about the means of grace, they're not tools for self-help or intellectual stimulation or theological jostling with opponents. No, they are conduits of union, the channels through which God enables us to comprehend the depths of Christ's love. And that leads to, thirdly, this glorious invitation. Verse 19, we reach the bottom of the spiral. We might be filled with all the fullness of God. And the spiral keeps getting deeper. As he prays to the Father that that, that he would share his strength, empowering our inner being to be able to comprehend what it means for Christ to dwell in our, fa- in our hearts through faith. All of this is this one preeminent aim, right? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All the fullness. You see, this is the culmination of God's purposes. This is how God has chosen to bring himself glory in the world. This is the culmination of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. This is the great aim of the glorious plan of redemption that Paul has been building up to over these last three chapters, describing that God in Christ is uniting us to himself, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. What he's doing From eternity past, God has glorified himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within himself in the perfect trinity. And as the Father beholds the perfect image of himself in the Son, and as the love for the Father and the Son eternally generates the bond of love between them and the Holy Spirit, and yet God is glorified in the sharing of his love. And so the triune God planned for his glory to cascade down through his creative work. And together, God creates the cosmos. He creates the universe as the theater for his glory. And he creates you and I, he creates humanity as, as in his own image. And God has chosen to bring glory to his name, not just through our creation, but by redeeming sinners like us and drawing us into himself. Now that Christ has come, Paul is blown away at the mystery of God's will of his creative purposes now revealed in Jesus, that God does intend in Christ to unite all things in himself, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, as God saves you, he intends to unite himself to you. That's why he saves you. Indeed, if you are in Christ, you are united to God by faith in Jesus. 
You see, the same Holy Spirit, which binds the Father and the Son, has now bound you in Christ through faith. And by the riches of God's grace, he has chosen us not to just be recipients of his love, but participants in Christ, drawing us in to enjoy the fullness of his glory, the radiance of his beauty, the depths of his love is all available to us now in Christ. You see, God is not glorified by indifferent spectators to who he is. Instead, he invites us in to draw near to the intimacy of his very heart. You see, God is generous. He is generous in his love, and he has created us to commune with him. In Christ, we are enabled to one day look upon the Lord with an unveiled face. And he longs to fill us with the fullness of who he is. Notice what the text says. God's not just sharing a part of who he is. No, he's sharing the fullness of who he is. All of himself he's made available to you because you are in Christ. These are amazing truths. As we think about them, we can't help but be amazed at how unsearchable is the depths of Christ's love. How humbling it is to receive an invitation from such an infinite and generous God like this. How blessed is he to redeem me from my sin, undeserving, lavish me with his love unconditional, and then unite me to his blessed son, and then invite me to enjoy all of his fullness. What good news is this? Church, as we keep our eyes in Christ, as we take up the means of grace, God longs to fill you with the fullness of who he is. He is open-handed. He's not withholding anything from you. He is generous. He is longing to give you a foretaste of the glory that you will one day know in heaven with an unveiled face. You see, Jonathan Edwards tried to capture something of the beauty of that future glory that awaits the saints in heaven. He wrote this in one of my favorite sermons of his called The Heaven is a World of Love. Edwards says, there is in heaven this fountain of love. This eternal three in one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory and beams of love. There, the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight enough for all to drink at and to swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world, as it were, with a deluge of love. This is what God has called us to to enjoy the infinity of his love, to overflow the world in a deluge of love. You see, at the end of the age, church, the Lord Jesus is coming back. He will return, and we will stand with unveiled faces in the presence of the triune God. We will behold God in his infinite perfections, all of his goodness, no longer encumbered by remaining sin or our creatureliness, we will behold God as the holy fount of love and his love pouring forth from the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit will cascade down as a fountain and we will be swallowed up in his goodness and his glory. And we will know all the fullness of God. What, what words can be uttered here? How, how can such beauties be described? 
all that can be said in response to this good news. Such glorious realities, such an anticipated consummation, such a generous invitation, all that can be said is doxology. And so Paul prays, chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray this prayer from Paul. Lord, we long to have a knowledge of your love that exceeds our comprehension. Oh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work within us through the means of grace, yes, to to strengthen our inner being, to change our hearts, to change our affections. Lord, help us to impress all of the glorious, beautiful realities that we have because we are united to Christ by faith. Lord, help us to be filled with all of your fullness. Father, I pray for the church, Lord, that this prayer would be one that they would pray often, or that we would pray for one another. Lord, that we would be transformed day by day from one degree of glory to the next as your grace continues to work in our lives. Lord, we have been justified definitively by faith in Jesus Christ at the moment of our new birth and conversion, but yet, Lord, you have given us a gospel which not only saves us from our sin, but, Lord, invites us into your love. Lord, help us to see the depths of the precious truths available to us in the gospel. Lord, may we know something about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of your love for us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who are severed from Jesus, Lord, who are not yet united to him. Lord, I pray that today they would repent of their sin, that they would reject it, that you, O Holy Spirit, would call them to see and to behold and to be enamored by the beauties of this gospel found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they would repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ this day. Lord, we are grateful, Lord, that you have done all of this for the praise of your glory and for the enjoyment of your people. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.